The legend lives on from the Chippewa down on the big lake they call Gitchigumi. The lake it is said never gives up a death of the skies and November and gloomy. As the admin fetched with a load of iron or twenty-six thousand tons more than the admin Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gaze of November came early. The wreck of Edmund Fitzgerald, that's uh, indigenous Midwest culture right there. Edmund Fitzgerald, down in Lake Michigan. Might not be terribly long today. I might not go the whole hour, just warning you, depending on how how it goes. But uh, I wanted to show the flag today. Since we only have a few days left of the Trump presidency, I feel like i got to put out as much content as possible. Since, you know, we're going to be entering the Biden zone soon, which, man, it's going to be weird. At this point, having Trump not be president is going to be very odd, because how is the press... The media, press, I sound like a 90, the media, how is the media going to deal with that? Because like they've all clearly decided at the top level that this guy is a threat to democracy. They've cut him off from Twitter. But are they going to be able to maintain that, uh, that unified face in resisting the urge to just cover him like he's still president? Because, my God, who wouldn't want to? I mean, you're going to have, otherwise what? You're going to have Joe Biden sitting in a rocking chair like, Grandpa Sawyer and fucking Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Give me a fucking break. That's not going to be fun. The inaugural, I can't wait for that speech. That's going to be a good sign of how much fun we're going to have, is how good that speech is. How much one, how much gibberish. The problem is, is that he's been pretty good on, on prompter lately. He was good at the convention. I'm assuming at this point that they do have a special suppository or something that they give him that adrenochrome and fucking molly that just keeps his brain sizzling and popping. And then, of course, as soon as he finishes talking, he just powers down completely and they have to put him in a fucking... Uh, they have to put him in a sensory deprivation chamber for 12 hours to minimize overstimulation. Otherwise, his brain will just completely uh, implode. It'll be fun, though. You know, we'll... we'll uh, We'll find, we'll make it fun. If, we'll make it fun, damn it. We'll make this guy fun too. This, I mean, he is, he is by far the most mentally uh, out there, out of there president since the, like, second term Reagan. Gotta be some humor there. Gotta be some hijinks. That new radical song, that's not a good one to me. That's not a good 90s song to me. I'm sorry. Um, mm, sex and candy. These are the '90s one-hit wonders. Where I wonder how, where I wonder how the hell they ever became hits in the first place. Because there's plenty of one-hit wonders that are intuitive to me. Oh, I get why the Macarena was a big hit. There's a periodic craving for a big a dance number, a big dance song that people can do together. But why the hell? I'm too sexy. I get why that was fun and popular. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. Uh, if nothing else. But what the hell 
is going on with some of these songs. Not a fan. Steal My Sun song, Steal My Sunshine is not a bad song. It's a fine 90s song. Certainly in the, the bucket of 90s one-hit wonders where I totally get why they were hits. Old, Old Town Road. Somebody's talking about Old Town Road. Old Town Road is weird in that it's almost less a one-hit wonder than a old-timey um, novelty song, which is a genre that has largely disappeared completely. Oh, God, how bizarre. I hated that one. That guy's voice was so whiny. Why? Who liked that? Oh, my God. LFO, LFO or whatever it was, uh, Girls of Summer, a terrible, terrible song. I get why it was popular, though. That was one I don't like, but I get why it was popular. Some of them I don't like, and I don't understand how anyone could like them. But I definitely got why. I mean, they were a boy band, and boy bands were popular. Oh, man, somebody mentions Alien Ant Farm. I was thinking about this the other week. How much worse is it? Being, what's worse, what's, all right, I mean, first of all, there's a question, if you're a musician, is it better to have been a failure or a grinder or something, or to be gotten a one-hit wonder, where you get one, a, a little moment in the sun, and then you're a punchline? Is it worth it? I mean, in past generations, but monetarily, it definitely would, because in the old uh, CD and album era, I think if you had one significant hit, you were going to make enough money there. If you didn't you know, do what MC Hammer did and buy a bunch of racehorses and solid gold pants, you'd be sitting pretty. But you know, you'd still be... Now, I don't even know if you get that. But there's got to be a special sort of sadness that comes with being a one-hit wonder where the one hit was a cover. Like Alien Ant Farm, their big hit was a cover of Smooth Criminal. Uh, also in the 90s, Urge Overkill from the Pulp Fiction soundtrack had a big hit that was a cover of Neil Diamond's Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. And not only does that sting from a, from a monetary perspective, because you've got to split royalties, but you don't even get to be known for a song you wrote. You wrote a bunch of songs you're probably proud of, and nobody has ever heard them. At least the one-hit wonder can say, hey, people heard a song I wrote, and they sang along to it, and they liked it. You just put some fucking rock guitar instrumentation behind a Michael Jackson song. That's got to suck. I mean, it's certainly a case like that. Some of them, the one-hit wonder is a more popular version of the song that was covered, in which case you sort of are the winner there, no matter what, but... Nobody's going to forget fucking Michael Jackson because some asshole, bald assholes showed up with guitars. A bunch of alien ant farm people died in a plane crash? I did not hear that. My God. Horrifying. No one's going to make me understand who Ariel Pink is. You can't do it. I refuse. You can't make me find out.
Who Let the Dogs Out was a cover? Probably. But there's no way that anybody did it as well as Baja Man. I refuse to believe it. They took every potential from that song and wrung it out. Who let the dogs out? Yeah, even Mitt Romney had heard uh, Who Let the Dogs Out. One of the greatest politician moments of all time. Something you couldn't script. Start shirt white Mormon reading a bunch of black people and just immediately going, Who Let the Dogs Out? Who? Yeah, I got nothing today. Uh, kind of waiting to see what happens on Inauguration Day, honestly. Pretty excited about it. Uh, I'm, I'm predicting one thing. Massive, overwhelming National Guard presence. And what else is happening at the same time? Everybody who idiotically filmed themselves in the Capitol is getting arrested by the FBI. Some of them are TikToking, filming them, TikTok filming themselves, turning themselves into the FBI, which, mwah. And those two things make it seem like they are, in fact, bringing down the hammer to let people know, all right, we're all having fun with this, and you guys are useful to a degree, but you are not, um, you're not calling the rodeo. You're not calling the tune. The piper calls the tune, and you don't got the fucking scratch. You are a bunch of uh, atomized streamers and real estate agents and a small engine repair company owners and parts distributors uh, and you are not a coherent political force that can upend our very, very useful democratic structures. I'm not saying that they're august or virtuous. Uh, I'm not saying that there's anything sacred about them. They are useful to power. So they're not going to be turned over to these yahoos because, uh, because they believe everything they see on the internet, including that Donald Trump is anything other than a complete fucking fraud. I mean, the, the reason they all did that is because they thought they were being told by the president to do it and that he was going to then use their actions as a part of a plan to take power. And he didn't have one. He just went home and watched TV. He told them he was going to march with them. And then all these idiots filmed themselves because why wouldn't they? That this is the this is the overthrow of the old regime. This is like why wouldn't you have filmed yourself breaking into the uh, the American embassy in Tehran or or uh, Stasi headquarters after the fall of the Berlin Wall? It turns out, oh yeah, no, uh, everything you think you believe is, is bullshit. And uh, and and more importantly than that. There are consequences for you believing this bullshit. And I think that a lot of these people are going to uh, go back to posting. Some of them are going to become apolitical and get into really weird shit, which I'm very much looking forward to, like deciding, oh, politics, politics. They're going to follow the rabbit hole into like some sort of esoteric religious shit. And if that happens, I'm down. I'm, I want to hear about what that, ha what that is. And then some of them are going to probably uh, get, get violent. But they're not going to be any match for the state.
Mm. Although now you got uh, the Democrats terrified that some of the somebody in the in the National Guard is going to kill Biden because they know that this is a huge the, the, there's a huge percentage of people in this country, including disproportionately white males in positions like the military, who even if they aren't Q believers are broadly sympathetic to the idea that Trump is better than Biden and that probably even that they stole the election from him. Well, how much, what are they going to do about it? What are they prepared to do about it? And we'll see, won't we? One thing, where, one thing we can all say is that everything is going fine and there's no problems whatsoever. We can all relax. I mean, I, that's what's so funny about the people who insist on you being upset or you personally showing some sort of uh, fear of fascism. It's to say that your particular pet fantasy is not based in reality is not to it, it insist inherently that things are good or sustainable. <laughs> that sure shit is not true. I do realize, though, that there is a real uh, congruity between Republicans under Obama who would insist that Obama say the words Islamic terrorism and people telling me that I need to say fascism. And the only difference is at least the Republicans were asking, you know, the President of the United States to do it and not a fucking podcaster. But the underguiding logic is exactly the same. The underguiding logic is, is that if enough people hear the bad, scary word, they will, with the Republicans, it's agree with us on, you know, a policy. And with the fascist thing, in practice, it's the same deal. It's agree with Democrats around a policy. And I cannot, I'm not going to sign up for anything that does that because the Democrats have nothing good to offer anyone. Just, they are, people, it's amazing the number of people who insist that they are like, Look, I'm as left as anybody. I understand the Democrats are bad, but you know, yeah, strategically supporting them for X, Y, and Z. Uh, one, they don't care about your help, really. You're just some assholes on the internet. You don't really have any power. Uh, and two, ev everything terrible that you're worried about happening, all of the, 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 the ratchet of nationalist and white supremacist violence uh, and, and cult-like savagery and like an unrestrained police state, that's all shit that they are encouraging at every step because they're locked in the death spiral. The mat extraction and, um, and mitigating uh, any attempt, any, any, mitigating any popular opposition to a program of austerity. I mean, that's what both parties do. They pitch it to different audiences but they both exist to predict, project a alternative to what people don't like. Uh, and then they believe naively uh, or desperately that that's what they're going to get, when really what they're going to get is a bipartisan collaboration to bring about worsening conditions for everybody. Ah. Uh. I mean, it's going to be worse, and they're both going to make it happen. 
and the anti-fascist agenda that you're supposed to be signing up for in practice is just defending the Democratic Party as they create, what, a domestic terror organization, a new uh, uh, intelligence agency staffed with, like, the, the kids from uh, Captain Planet who aren't going to be... See, no, this isn't like an evil, unaccountable, uh, um, repressive state institution like in the past. This one is, uh, has a staff of uh, diverse millennials, it's like the Burger King Kids Club. Here's a kid in a wheelchair. Here's a, a black kid. Here's a Latina. The, these guys possibly couldn't abuse their power and try to suppress uh, resistance to uh, neoliberal hell. No. So if that's what the whole point of it is, and that is it, it's, that's that's what that's what everybody everyone is disingenuously arguing for either because they've convinced themselves because they're too addicted to fear and too addicted to to the idea that they're in a cataclysmic moment in history where they could be defined by their resistance to evil in the form of posts or they really just want people to shut the fuck up and let Biden do his job and this is a good way to uh, go about that it's a good rhetorical cudgel I saw Eric Levitt's Claim broadly, claim explicitly. The whole, the whole point of the fascism thing is to get people to not like them. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a messaging tool. But who are you messaging? The only people who care about these terms are people who are already in your discourse bubble. They're already, they're already sorted. You're not bringing any new people into the fold. You're not convincing any new people. That's really what, what people seem to be unwilling to accept, probably because it shows how functionalists they are, how unable they are to do anything meaningful other than just fill a role, is that our political discourse is pitched to the same group of, of people who, who consume political media and vote. And that is a relatively stable pool of people whose opinions are made up. The only way that you're going to break the dynamic we have now, the only reason you're, the way you're going to destroy the Republican Party, the way that so many uh, liberal leftists demand, is if the, you radically change the, the, uh, the demographic and size of the political subject in this country. Corey Robin has been 100% right about this the whole way, long way, by the way. Got it. I was. I said this on a previous stream, but Robin has gotten the Trump thing way better than a lot of other uh, intellectuals who you'd think would be able to see what was in front of them, but uh, but you know are blinded by the same spectacular politics that, that ensorcel, as I left, like to say, uh, all of us. So give him credit for holding strong. One thing that, uh, one element of fascism that is totally absent in the current variety, and I don't think anyone even argues otherwise, is the uh, territorial expansionism. And you can say, oh, you know, sort of saber-rattling with Iran or increasing bombings in Yemen or Somalia, that's all terrible, but it's mostly part of the machinery of, 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 it's, it's maintaining the machinery of, of the empire we have. And that's just it. We have already taken 
everything. Where is to expand? And that's because fascism was the, la the late piglets to the trough of colonialism. The places that went fascist were the countries that, because Italy and, and Germany were the European countries that, because they became modern polities the latest, were able to access the spoils of empire last, at which point most of it was already taken. The Monroe Doctrine had shut, uh, uh, had shut uh, Western Hemisphere to any kind of expansion, and Africa and China were carved up between the, uh, the British and the French. Hell, the fucking Portuguese and the Dutch had more fucking stuff than the Germans and the Italians had. And the thing that guys like Mussolini and Hitler realized is that in the, uh, in the world of the nation-state, if you take as a premise nation-state competition as existential, which Europeans had for generations and which had been, you know, violently and horrifically and monstrously demonstrated in World War II, or, I'm sorry, World War I, uh, which was, you know, uh, in many ways exacerbated by the, the great game, the colonial game, um, they saw, oh, we, we don't stand a chance in this contest. The Japanese military had the same epiphany. We don't stand a chance unless we can access some fucking raw materials, if we can get some of those new markets going, if we can reach that next higher stage, a higher stage of capitalism that Lenin talked about. And the moral of horror that the Allies saw, or were able to provoke at the, uh, at the Axis, was essentially that they were doing that stuff or they wanted to do that stuff. One in Europe, at least Hitler did, Germany did, in, in the, with the Ost plan, where they were going to turn the Ukraine into a, a neo-feudal, uh, like, a neo-feudal agricultural colony with, like, little communities of SS officers and their families as, as colonial barons, and then the, the, the remaining uh, Slav population that hadn't been starved to death would be working in agricultural serfdom, basically. Um, so they did it to the wrong people, and they did it after uh, the rest of the European empires had, uh, to a degree or another, civilized themselves by virtue of time passing, and by virtue of success. There's nowhere to go now. The, the, the myth is over. We're not creating political... There's no movement in America, least of all Trumpism, that is trying to create a, a polity. Or I mean, it's trying to create a national project. And I think the reason that that matters, and the reason it's not just uh, fucking pedantic uh, academic shit, is because it all goes to the question of, well, what do you do about it? Which is the only question that actually matters, right? Obviously, the academic definitions are meaningless. The question is, what do you do about it? And the, 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 the reality of the, 
the emotional reality of the fashions of question is that what it means is what you do about it, one, support the Democrats in everything they do because they are our only alternative and because they are a meaningfully anti-fascist force, even though, as I've said, we're actually operating a system where both parties move the ball forward in tandem, inching towards shit uninterruptedly and that they are like symbiotically connected and that the Democrats are as responsible as Republicans are for the drift of things. And so that therefore supporting them, obviously, to the degree that it's in any way, you know, effective is effectively helping everything get worse, including the rise of whatever the hell kind of fascist demon you think is being conjured here. And then otherwise, if it's not that, what is it? Punch Nazis? Spectacles of violence? I don't, that just seems like more, uh, more personal expression replacing political organizing. Uh, or, or posting. A lot of it seems to be posting to try to get everybody to your level of anxiety and then make thinking that that will make people move forward. And that might work if we had a situation where there was emerging in the land a, a, or a coherent nationalist movement to fill a, a political space. But there's no space. There's just a bunch of fucking people milling around and people filling out, carrying out uh, individualized fantasies of, of violent redemption, which is what we've been doing now for generations. And if that's the case, then the implications are that the goal or the, the, um, the goal needs to be, the project needs to be building a left building a coherent uh, expression of a class politics in order to challenge the Democrats and Republicans, and by virtue of doing that, challenge this drift towards like white, ma- white violent fantasy, which is a, a real thing and is truly being ratcheted up. And so, if that's the case, and I think it's true regardless of where you fall on any of the semantic questions, the, the need to fill the public space with real class politics is still the, nece- the necessary goal, regardless of anything. If you take that fact and add to it the fact that the, uh, the, the lesson that many people seem to want to take from uh, a a explanatory model that involves words like fascism and, and, and stuff is, is to just do more clinging to the coattails of the Democratic Party and hoping that they protect you from, from the mean bad people. But they're all the same monsters. Uh, and while they not, the Democrats might not be as, as malicious, they might not be as sadistic, they might not be as racist, they are as committed to the machines that produce, not, if not the feelings, those feelings, the willingness of people to act on them, politically and personally.
God, Elon Musk being the richest person in the world right now. I mean, if whatever histories of the era, like of the Roaring Twenties before the big collapse, uh, and I'm not, I don't mean necessarily a collapse of like civil government, but a, a economic correction, which I think is inevitable. Just you know, you you know, who who the hell knows when it's coming. The fact that the richest guy on earth was someone who didn't really make anything, who did not have any basis for his wealth that made sense in any intuitive way. Bill Gates made computers. People bought the computers. Jeff Bezos delivers things to you in computers and other computers, also other products. What does Elon Musk do? He makes like 10,000 shitty electric cars that cost a ton of money and kill you a year and, and lies about building tunnels that are, uh, that, that, and says they're going to replace uh, like mass transit and they're literally, they're, they're theme park rides and he doesn't even build them. I mean, he just, he, he, he games, tax breaks and incentives uh, in the green sector and, uh, and in space and stuff just to get his name out there and associate it with a vision of uh, technological deliverance from this moment that we live in, and then exploits that to absurdly overvalued, absurdly, world historically overvalued stock. Nothing has ever been as overvalued as Tesla. I don't, I'm not a bunch of an expert on this shit, but it's not, I don't think a lot of people would argue with that. I mean, the underlying financials of that company are non-existent. And what it is, is the reason this has happened, one, because we are in this gigantic bubble where the money is just sloshing around. There's, no, there's nowhere to get profit. So everything is just pure speculation. Uh, and also the fact that he has become the cultural avatar for, uh, for capitalism saving itself. Because everybody knows, everybody can sense that this shit is all in a bad trajectory. Unless you're a completely, I mean, unless you have your own fantasies of Q where we're all going to get eaten by reptiles and you're still, a, and the, everybody is feeling apocalyptic, whether you believe in global warming or not. But if you do believe that global warming is real, you do believe that we are going towards a, a condition of significant ecological crisis and, and these in, uh, instability. But because you are an American more than anything, and your ideologically uh, structured, your your ideological understanding of the world is structured, or especially if you're somebody who invests in the stock market and you have a literally vested interest in capitalism maintaining itself, the conclusion you might draw from the crisis we're in of oh this system doesn't work uh, is not appealing because you don't want to do away with the system. It does well for you, and you have you have. You also have faith in it, ideological faith in it. Elon Musk is the figure who has embodied the notion that capitalism can fix itself through innovation uh, and through uh, through brilliance and uh, and dedication. Uh, all the uh, all those stuff that has brought us all of, of the greatest technological innovations in history that will also solve the present crisis, whatever however form it takes, whether it's energy uh, or environment. It can all be ameliorated by brilliant men of vision, men of vision mostly, uh, applying their brilliance to the, the, the thorny technological questions. Because if 
you cannot accept that there is a uh, fundamental problem with the, the system that is producing these outcomes, then the, uh, so the only solutions you can accept are that something is broken within it and that that can be technologically fixed. That there, that, that there is some sort of application of engineering somewhere along the line that can uh, bring us back onto the, the beam. And Elon Musk's pitch to the world is that he can do it. He's going to get us all electric cars and batteries and underground tunnels that will soothe all of our social ills and buy us more time. And people are willing to spend a lot of money to believe that. And, there, and especially since at this point, it's only an upside because the motherfucking stock keeps going up. Fucking guy was on Rick and Morty for Christ's sake. And so the fact that you have this significant, this overlapping series of deepening ecological and economic catastrophes and crises that are compounding one another across a global economic system, and the richest person to to emerge from the system that exists to create giant fucking fortunes is this paper billionaire whose entire wealth is predicated on ludicrously overvalued stock that is entirely pumped up by PR stunts, uh, backroom deals with uh, government, uh, and a worldwide self-delusion, and need to believe in capitalism. At the end of the day, we just have to believe. Because the alternative is too unthinkable. And, and Musk is someone you can actually believe in. Not just from the sidelines, but from the position of uh, an investor and consumer. You can make it happen. You can buy a Tesla. You can buy Tesla stock. Or you can go online and argue in people's comments about how he's a genius. Even though he today suggested that they build tunnels under Miami which is in Florida, a state with a water table that is about three inches below the surface of the, wa of the, of the uh, earth and is entirely limestone. I mean, just a, a, a bimbo but, and, a, and a classic carnival barker. And, it makes, and it's perfectly fitting that he would be our avatar of global capitalism, this scam artist. And then look who is the avatar now of Trumpism in the absence of Trump. Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, who is another perfect avatar of middle American petty bourgeois reaction. Uh, I'm going to see if I can find the quote. But, uh, but Rick Perlstein's first book, Before the Storm, the one about Barry Goldwater, um, features in the very beginning an extended description of this type of people who would make up the, the first um, generation of funders and organizers of the, the right-wing reaction to the New Deal consensus that emerged after World War uh, II. So let me see if I can find this quote.
All right, here it is. This is from the very first chapter uh, before the storm, the Mannionites. Imagine you live in a town of 20 or 50 or 100,000 souls, in Indiana perhaps, or Illinois or Missouri or Tennessee, with a colonnaded red brick city hall at the center, a main street running its breadth, avenues rimmed with modern bungalows named for trees and exotic heroes and local luminaries, interrupted at intervals by high steepled churches. On the outskirts of town are factories. It is June 1959, and three shifts a day, they throw up great clouds of smoke, churning out vast pools of cement, cords of lumber, spools of rolled steel, machine parts of every size and description. Although no one who doesn't have to would ever venture inside one of these factories, local points to, locals point to them with pride because they are what make their little town prosper, and because all over the world foundries use machine parts inscribed with the town's name. Imagine you are the proprietor of one of these concerns. Your father founded it. Perhaps to start things, he catched a loan from the father of a man you bank with now, probably by dint of their shared membership on any number of company boards and fraternal orders and community chests and ch church committees. The bank let it slide when your father, who had made sacrifices to expand his plant in the hopes that the town's grandchildren, too, might enjoy its fruits, was late, a time or two paying off a note. You grew up reading the adventure novels in the kit Mark Tidd series by Clarence Buddington Keeland, an author prominent in the National Republican Party, and your favorite was the story of a group of boys taking over a rundown sawmill and getting it to turn a profit. Up till then, a river didn't mean anything to me but a thing to fish or swim in, the narrator says, but before I was many months older, I discovered that ro rivers weren't invented just for kids to monkey with, nor yet to, to make a home for fish. They have they are businesses, just like anybody else, and they're valuable just like any other business, getting more valuable with more business they do. Calvin Coolidge once said, the man who built a factory builds a temple. The man who works there worships there. You agree. You like Calvin Coolidge. By the time you took over the plant, uh, the additions you built were too expensive to finance through any of the banks in your town, which was now a small city. More and more, you found yourself trudging to New York, hat in hand, for money. New York, after all, controlled over a quarter of the nation's banking reserves. Your letterhead soon bore an address in Manhattan as well as the one in your town, but it galled you that it took... To what it took to get the Wall Street boys to take you seriously. You had worked much harder than any of them when they went, you went to college with them back east. When the union rep came by to try to sign up your men, there are hundreds, but you know most of them by name, you told the workers stories of the sacrifices your father made for their fathers. You reminded them of the times you kept everyone on the payroll when business was slack, of how you were always ready with an advance to help with a new baby or a sick mother. For 50 years, they seemed perfectly happy without a union, but when FDR signed the Wagner Act, the organizers came again, this time with a slogan. The president wants you to join a union. A union came. Uh, this goes on for a while, but I highly recommend anybody reading it. And in it, he describes the small burgers, the small bourgeois in, in the nation's interior that were the original fonts of anti-New Deal reaction at the cultural level, and how over time they became more influential as more people came to agree with them. But they were at first very, very limited in number because there weren't that many people who were feeling that the, bad, the deal was bad because that was the time of the great prosperity. But as things got worse and as cultural differences sharpened especially, and then after the neoliberal turn, it only got bigger and bigger. Uh, and now you've got people who have no financial stake and like a, the, the small uh, regional economies are in fact as much serfs to them as the rest of us are serfs to global finance, uh, but who don't see that, who only see because they've been, their politics have been fo totally filtered through just the cultural affect 
that uh, that they recognize and either accept or reject, and that there has no real underlining politics. But the reason they're doing that, the reason they're listening to that, the reason they're they're responding to those cultural cues is, and the reason that they want an answer that is that bloody and, and is that confrontational and is that apocalyptic is because things are worse for everybody. And even if they aren't worse for you, you can see them getting worse. And honestly, for a lot of these type of people, they are getting worse. But the, the, the modern version of this guy that, that uh, he's talking about here, personally he's talking about, is Mike, Mike Lindell. But of course, he is the version from now, not from then. He is the version who was a crackhead for 40 years uh, and then decided that, oh, uh, actually Jesus loves me more than anyone on earth and has told me that it is my destiny to become a, a billionaire pillow salesman. And now he is a, a, a small, relative to the fortunes back east, uh, bourgeois factory owner. Like, there's a factory that makes those goddamn pillows in, in Minnesota. And now he is their, them. He is, he is the smallholder, the one from that, 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 the, or small factory owner, the small business tyrant, uh, overblown, and now a cultural figure, and potentially a political figure as well. I don't know if he's got the charisma to be Trump, but he fits the pattern very well. And the other thing that he has in common with Trump, and I think this gets underrated, is that, and this is also one of the things that undermines all the fretting about, oh, what if a competent Trump? What about a smart Trump? What about a Trump who has a plan? That's the contradiction in terms, because Trump's incoherence and idiocy are the things that people like about him. Because what got Trump through the door more than any policies was that other dumb people heard him and knew that he was also dumb like them. The reason that you're not going to see, the reason that he was able to bowl, just bowl over all those regular Republicans and why no regular Republican will be able to get his base, no matter what they say, is that regular Republicans are, for the most part, smarter than the people they're talking to or imagine they're talking to. And that comes across as condescending. There is a degree of falseness and condescension to political communication that your rustic dumbass recognizes. And Sarah Palin broke through because she was a genuine rustic idiot. And Trump put up her baton because he is also a genuine rustic idiot. But the thing they also but but, but because they were both genuine rustic idiots and because their rustic idiocy is what endeared them and made them popular, it also guarantees that they could not create a political uh, movement of any coherence to pass on and to exploit because they're too dumb to do that. They're too dumb to care about that stuff. They, Sarah Palin is more ideologically committed to like conservatism as a concept than Trump is, but just barely. She is a Instagram dipshit. And she only ever cared about herself. And so as soon as she got the national spotlight, she blew it on reality shows and tummy tea endorsements and is now a fucking laughingstock. Trump was able to take that movement, get to the center of it, and take it to the presidency. But as soon as he lost, it's over. He wasn't even, he, this, his attempt to, to foment a coup 
And I mean, yeah, of course he tried to keep, overturn the election. There's no question he tried to overturn the election. But he did that by just calling people and say, overturn the election, please. And then just tweeting to his followers, overturn the election, please. And then go in front of people and say, overturn the election, please. If you're at the center of a fucking political conspiracy, you actually have to have some agency, especially when you're the president of the fucking United States. And he had none because he is a rustic dumbass who is just interested in himself, has no object permanence, let alone a, a, a vision of an enduring political legacy. He doesn't care about passing on anything to anyone else because anyone else isn't him. Like, talking to him about a legacy is terrible because you're making him think about the fact that he's not going to be here someday and he can't conceive of that because he's a dumbass. And if he hadn't been that dumb, they would have picked up on it. And Mike Liddell is as much a rustic dumbass as Palin or Trump, which means his dumbassness will come off as authentic and it will mean that he will be as incapable of building an actual movement as any of them have been. They will all get led around by the nose by fucking actual political operators who are keyed into interests beyond, of above and beyond the narrow fucking ego of these rustic dumbasses. And they will make them do what they want to do, which is why Trump governed as a fucking Republican. The only big thing he carried out, the only big domestic policy he carried out was a fucking tax cut. He had a chance in that election, even with COVID and his horrible botching of COVID, he had a chance to win that election if he had fought harder for checks. That was totally in his control to do. Even if McConnell was going to hold him up, even if Pelosi was going to hold him up, he could have fought for them harder. He could have fought and put his name on him more. Instead, what did he talk about in the run-up to the election? He talked about how he couldn't get his giant shits down the toilet. He talked about how Cher was mean to him because he was too stupid even to know what he was to know where, what he was actually, like the buttons he was pressing, or how, where, what access to powers and access to, um, to influence he had. How much did Trump talk about the, about the checks and how he wanted more checks? He tweeted it a couple of times. Did he put it front and center anywhere? No, because his advisors also didn't want those checks. They also probably wanted him to lose. Honestly, they were sick of him and he'd served his purpose. And he had no ability to push against that, even though it was in his power because he, didn't even, he wasn't even aware of it, because he wasn't even able to keep the thought in his head long enough to pursue it. He was distracted. He saw a fucking squirrel out the window or fucking, uh, he was watching the William Devane for Goldline commercial again. That's, and if he hadn't had that, if he hadn't been that rabbit-brained, he wouldn't have gotten in that position in the first place where people would think he was a god emperor and want to fucking charge into the mouth of Congress on his behalf. The stupidity, the idiocy, the authenticness is what they're responding to more than any policy. See, people say Napoleon III, but Napoleon III spent his whole life fixated on becoming Emperor of France. He thought it was his birthright. He got arrested several times and spent time in prison, years in prison, for trying to overthrow the government. In his prison, he wrote himself, not, have, not just have a fucking ghostwriter wrote, wrote books where he imagined what like, the political economy of, of, of a restored Bonapartist empire would be. 
he was actually pursuing all along a goal. And then when he got himself elected president, thanks to the potato sacks in the countryside and the sausage-addicted soldiers and the, the lumpen proletariat, he was able to ex um, exacerbate the conflicts within the ruling class in order to overcome them and defeat them in turn and supersede them because he was actually trying to do that. Trump has never tried to do anything. The trade war is the closest thing they did to any kind of like economic populism and it fucking failed. It blew up, up in their faces. All it did was fucking pauperize a, sh a bunch of soybean farmers in the Midwest. That was and because it's like we're getting killed in trade. He's not doing it as some sort of attempt to create a new industrial policy and like create a, a bring back the jobs, whatever the hell that means. He's thinking in, in, in pure terms of, uh, of, of like state competition, even though these are interdependent economies. And it ended up just being a button mashing disaster that helped nobody. It did bring back the McRib though, I think. I'm not sure if that's true, but I think I read that one of the reasons they brought back the McRib is, is that uh, China's uh, retaliatory tariffs on, on uh, pig, uh, pork bellies led to a glut which meant that McDonald's could swoop in and grab them. Like, Trump only cares about his own brand, and not even, like, brand beyond himself, like, to his family. Him, because he cannot imagine himself dying. He cannot imagine himself not existing. That's why he has to watch TV all day. That's why he has to keep the focus on himself at all times and keep the volume up. Because he's got to drown out that fucking voice in his head telling him he's going to die. One of my favorite Trump moments ever, just as a pure tableau of, of just monstrous uh, crudeness, was during the campaign, I think, he was on an airplane, the campaign plane, being interviewed. And there was a big TV on, and it was blaring the Empire Carpet Jingle. This guy is supposed to be a billionaire running for president, and he's just glued to the TV, like all, like right, like like your grandfather, which is why they love him because he's the same. He's there is a identification beyond politics, beyond even words, and it's a recognition, it's a mutual recognition. Just think how many times he has heard the fucking Salino and Barnes jingle and uh, the Empire Carpet jingle in his life. How many times has he heard uh, the catheter ads that they play on Fox News? It's my money and I need it now. 
You had a structured settlement, and you need cash now. The people who have those songs in their head all the time are unemployed loser types and fail sons, such as myself, uh, and old retired people, and the, pre the literal president of the literal United States. Oh, J.D. I was always wondered about the J.D. Wentworth thing. How many calls do they get a day of, from people going, hey, I want one of those structured settlements? How many times does the, does the person at that uh, hotline number have to say, no, we can only restructure an existing settlement. We can't get you one. I would probably to have fun, kind of be like, well, if you want a structured settlement, here's what you do. You go down to the grocery store, you find a nice, recently uh, mopped piece of uh, floor, and you just eat shit, in, uh, hopefully on camera, uh, in front of witnesses if possible. Make sure to just go totally ham on it, though. You can't, you can't pussyfoot. You gotta really, really, really commit to hitting your head on the fucking floor. Tell J.D. Whitworth that's so much of a cash now. Damn it. Well, that's going to be in my head for the rest of the day. Fantastic. Oh, God. Vaginal mesh. Ooh. That's got to be one of the grimmest jobs is at the call center at the vaginal mesh lawsuit number. Call, people calling in to tell you about their mesh mishaps, their vaginal mesh mishap, their vaginal mesh mishaps, vaginal mesh, hmm. vaginal mesh mishaps, vaginal mesh mishaps, hmm. vaginal mesh mishaps, vaginal mesh mishaps. Vaginal mesh mishaps. There we go. Did it three times. Very proud of myself. Yes, please clip that. That should be a clip. Clipping is disabled, maybe because uh, I'm getting canceled too much. I don't know. I never dis I never disabled it. I don't know how. The I wouldn't know how to go about doing that. I still don't know how they get these little pictures of me in the in the chat. I don't. I don't know how that works. Like, hey, there's a little me. What's going on? Hey, there I am. Yeah, I was hoping someone would post that. My little face. There he is. Hi. Adorable. You are on a You need cash now. J.D. Wentworth. A seven seven cash now. Wonderful. It's wonderful what you have in your brain instead of memories and feelings and connections to other people. You just have this, these broken toys of jingle shards and slogans and contextless 
phrases. Pontypool really was, really was this prophetic film. So much of our, uh, our berserk moment, I think. Obviously, at every level, it's being forced and exacerbated by the continual you know, pressure of worsening conditions, of, worsening, of, of greater precarity. Remember, it's about precarity. It's not about absolute conditions. Sense, sense of felt precarity and lack of control. On top of that, just everybody's head being filled every day with more, like, we used to have three memes a year. There used to be three memes a year. And two of them came from Super Bowl commercials. Now you get three memes a day. How are you supposed to have a brain? How are you supposed to be able to think with that noise in your head at all times? Yes, I am Grandpa Simpson. But some of the older chokes will remember in the pre-internet era, not even pre-internet, pre-social like, media era, there were very few uh, things in a year that like, would become a, a cultural reference point. And a lot of them were commercials, specifically Super Bowl commercials. You'd sit and you watch the Super Bowl, and one of the big things you would do is you would pay attention for the big ad. Was up, Budweiser frogs, and then that would last you for six months. The Bud Bowl. Does anyone remember the Bud Bowl? They had the little bottles play football. And we were supposed to get all excited about who was going to win. Oh, man. Tastes great, less filling. Doritos did a number of them. The, the Dally Larder. No, I know Larder. What's her name? I can't remember her name, but there's a, a, a woman who like got an acting career because she was sexy in a Doritos commercial. was not Allie Larder. I think her name was Allie something. She married uh, she married Mario Lopez, I think, and then they got divorced very quickly after that. Allie Landry, they're saying. Let me check. Yep, that was her. She sexually ate a Dorito and became famous for it. Different time. So yeah, if I have any advice for anyone, it's uh, limit your own meme intake. Because if you just let yourself indulge in memes willy-nilly, you are going to get meme diabetes. So... It's up to you to limit your meme intake. No more than I'd say a meme. You know what? A meme a week. You get one meme a week. See if that can handle, if you can handle that. All right. Bye-bye.